Al Jazeera Podcasts. How relevant is the non-aligned movement? The second largest organization of its kind after the United Nations meets in Uganda. But what problems can it solve in a world marred by escalating tensions? I'm Nastasia Tay and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Well, we have a global panel to speak about this global movement. In the Ugandan capital, Kampala, we have Nicholas Sangoba. He's a columnist for the Daily Monitor National Newspaper. In the Indonesian capital, Jakarta, Endi Bayuni is a former editor of the Jakarta Post. And also in Kampala, where that summit's been taking place, Dima Al-Khatib, director of the United Nations Office for South-South Cooperation. A very warm welcome to you all. Thank you for being on Inside Story with us today. Um, Nicholas, I'll start with you, as you are also there in Kampala. So let me ask you, in the face of two ongoing wars right now in, in Ukraine and Gaza, where great powers are involved, as well as what some have called a second Cold War between the US and, and China, what does it mean right now to the countries there in Kampala? What does it mean to be non-aligned? In the face of uh, these two wars, it's a very great test for what we mean and what, uh, and what we define as non-alignment. Because if there, there are global issues and uh, the powers that are contesting, as the non, we as the, the, the countries in the non-aligned movement or the countries in the South, the most that we can do um, to show our viability is what is it that we can do in this sort of situation to influence the events that take place, especially in bringing about all these powers to sue for peace. Now, the challenge that we have as uh, most of the countries in the non-aligned movement and the global south is that we are still very dependent countries on, uh, despite the fact that we speak about non-alignment, we speak about independence, we speak about, as the president of Uganda says, pro ourselves. Most of the things that we do, we are simply following and we can only make comments that in effect, uh, do not bind or do not uh, have any, you know, impact. For instance, mm -hmm. now with the, the war in, uh, in, in Gaza, South Africa has come out very, very clearly with this case of, of uh, genocide. Now, there's a very big story there. One, because South Africa is one of the countries that uh, we would call... Um, the big economies sure. on the African continent and in the South. They're members of the BRICS and all that. So they can speak. Now, the rest of us, what can we do apart from make comments? There's nothing well, practical that we can do. Nicholas, and speaking where... of comments, we saw from the Kampala Declaration that came out after the summit, a very clear political statement. The Kampala Declaration includes denouncing Israel's actions in Gaza, calling for an immediate ceasefire. Endy, let me bring you in here. I, I've been wondering around this idea between being non-aligned and being neutral. Does making a, a political statement against Israel then potentially align you against a, a great power like the United States? Uh, 
no, uh, the answer is no. Uh, I think uh, that the fact that the summit in Kampala came out with a statement denouncing Israel uh, aggression in in Gaza was widely expected. I mean, this is something that I think uh, goes back to the history of the non-life movement, uh, even going further back to the, the Bandung uh, uh, summit of Asia-Africa countries in 1955, uh, where, you know, the, the principles uh, laid down includes sovereignty and independence. Mm. And uh, until now, there's one country that remains under, under occupation, and that is Palestine. And I think every summit uh, of or the non-aligned movement, uh, Indonesia definitely insisted on having a statement with regard to the the, the creation of a, a independent state of the Palestine. So that is, uh, uh, is, is it was widely expected. But when it comes to uh, talk about neutrality, no, no, non-alignment is not about neutrality, but it's actually about uh, taking an active part in in finding solutions to the problems, but without without aligning with one or the other power. Now we are seeing the emergence of a new Cold War, uh, particularly between uh, China and the United States. Certainly in the Indo-Pacific region, we are feeling it very strong. Uh, and then I think the countries are being expected to align with one or the other. And with China expanding its power to Africa and beyond, particularly through uh, Belt and Road initiatives, I think that contestation between the two big powers are g even growing, expanding. Uh, two years ago, uh, uh, China and Russia signed this unlimited uh, strategic partnership, meaning that if one of them is mm -hmm. being attacked, I think they would, hope, would help the other. So basically, we are now entering into a new Cold War situation. And this is, I think, where the non-allied movement as moral voice is very important and a lot of expectation are being placed in the Kampala uh, summit sure. to come up with something to address this issue. Andy, I want to talk a little bit more about what's been happening in the Asia-Pacific region in just a moment, but you mentioned something yeah. there about solving problems and the non-aligned movement yeah. being a moral voice. Uh, Dima, you work for yeah. the United Nations and, and one of the, the biggest criticisms around the UN when it comes to the war on Gaza has been about the lack of ability at the UN Security Council. And I know obviously you're not involved with the Security Council, but I'm asking about the UN structure, the infrastructure of the UN as a whole, that there has been a complete inability to reach any kind of agreement. Obviously, there are veto powers at the Security Council. You've been at the summit there in Kampala, Dima, and I'm wondering about the conversations that have been taking place. How much of what's emerged, uh, this strong political statement that we've seen on Gaza, how much of that has been in response, a counterpoint somewhat, to the inaction that we've seen at the UN? That the, the movement wants to, to try to find some kind of solution, to be a moral voice and make some kind of statement. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, let me dwell a little bit on the, uh, on the uh, Third South Summit that's taking place here the discussions that are happening and the declaration capturing the different elements that are being discussed. Uh, this is the importance of such a meeting. It's uh, kind of reviving, if you will, uh, the common and the common agenda and the collective call for action across different topics, including uh, issues related to the geo geopolitical situations, the different crises, but also the development issues. 
And this is where our role as Office for UN, the UN Office for South-South Cooperation, where we come in by not only listening to the different uh, elements of discussions, by, but also by uh, gearing our different services, whether it's support to the intergovernmental processes, or it is support to knowledge management and knowledge sharing, but also in terms of supporting the countries is in undertaking South-South cooperation projects via the UN systems come into play. Hence our uh, participation and active engagement. On the sidelines, there are different topics that are also at the heart of the discussions and that are, that are affected by the different crises. As we speak right now, there is an ongoing discussion on trade uh, challenges, trade issues, and the role of South-South cooperation in economic growth. Mm -hmm. So bottom line, what I'm trying to say here is that the call for action and the collective discussions do cover an array of issues and I'm sure that yes, the outcome document that they are, you know, that the uh, different countries, the group of 7-7 and China are putting together, they do cover that comprehensively, but they do also call for action. They do call for more solidarity among themselves and they do call of a more unified uh, response to the different development issues that are affected by many factors, including the crisis in different countries. Thank so, you. Dima, just, just to clarify for our viewers, there are actually two summits that have been taking place in Kampala. One was the summit of the, the non-aligned movement that's already wrapped up. We had something like 30 heads of state there for that. And Uganda has now taken the chair of that movement. Literally the next day, you're now at a summit, which is the Third South Summit. That's the G77 plus China. That's also a, a large number of developing countries, and that's also being chaired by Uganda, but it is a, a separate summit. A lot of the same issues being discussed, obviously sustainable development being very high up there. Before I let you go, though, I, I want to ask you, Dima, about UN reform specifically, because this is something that the non-aligned movement has been very vocal about since its inception. And just, just coming back to that, that first summit, I, I've been curious about whether or not there's any kind of, of unified position now. We're talking about a huge number of countries, and I know there's, there's been a big push for greater representation, particularly for small states who perhaps wouldn't, be, wouldn't have their voices heard as loudly as others. Is there a, a broad consensus on what UN reform would look like in the eyes of the non-aligned movement? Uh, I, I think the discussions are still uh, going on, but this has been voiced, and you are totally right, uh, to have an amplified voice for the smaller countries and uh, to have uh, reforms uh, taking place. And this is something that the UN Secretary General has also referred to uh, this morning in his statement. The discussions are ongoing. There is a majority of call for, for uh, such actions to take place, rightly so. Uh, but it's still going on. Now, how would this translate into action remains to be seen, but there is a lot of conversions, if you will, around that. I see you nodding there, Andy. Do you have a sense of, of what that agenda might, might entail? Well, I mean, this, this uh, UN reform has been, like you said, um, in the, the movement's agenda, and it's, we, we don't see any progress. Uh, but I, I think uh, the, the movement should continue to press with this demand, although we, we, we should be realistic that you know, it's, 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 it's not going to happen anytime soon. But, you know, with more than 100 countries uh, in, in, in uh, the movement or the G77, 
they represent a collective voice. I understand it's difficult to, to bring a consensus with such a huge uh, group. Uh, but again, this I think very much depends on the leadership of the movement. It's a rotating chairmanship for, for yeah. three years. And I think uh, this is now really done to U Uganda to make uh, a difference uh, in, in the movement. We don't have a lot of expectation, but I think the pressure from the global south through G77 and through the non-aligned movement should, should continue. So you mentioned there that Uganda will be chairing not only the non-aligned movement, but also the G77 and China. Obviously, Museveni and Uganda have, have a very big influence over the, the agenda and, and what's happening over the course of the next few years. Now, the non-aligned movement emerged from, from deep post-colonial roots, and there's always been a bit of a suspicion from the West. And I'm wondering, within the context of what's happened in Ukraine, what's happening in Gaza, how much that's influencing Museveni's agenda. What is the top of that agenda? I'm afraid um, whatever agenda he has, I'm not really very optimistic. And my reason is that whether it is the, the, the G77 plus China uh, or the non-aligned movement, what determines uh, the way the the North and generally the world in, looks at uh, the way they look at Africa is what sort of states do we bring to the table? Are these viable states? You know very well, most of the countries in the global South and the non-aligned movement have the, some of the worst figures when you come to the global problems, uh, global problems with disease, poverty, debt, uh, issues to do with eco the ecology and so on and so forth. We are the greatest producers of uh, migrants in the world. And so all those things, the way the world looks at us is that we are really clients. Uh, we are, we are, they pay our, our, our debt, they pay for our economies, and in many cases, they even pay wages for our civil servants. Now, how then do we come as a force however big the numbers are, how do we come as an effective force if we are still indebted, if we are still, uh, if we are still playing to the tune of, of, of the piper? So that is where the challenge we have. President Museveni is very good with facts, with figures, and he speaks very, very well. But at the end of the day, what we are looking at is how will the voice that he brings after having uh, all the years that he has had in power, the influence he has in Africa, and globally in general, how, what effect does that voice have if the countries that, quote unquote, he's leading are still uh, recipients of aid, are still recipients mm -hmm. of donation, are still, you know, at the bottom end of the pecking order. That is where the problem is. How are we going to be taken seriously when the, ne the very next day we are going to be asking for, 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 for aid, we are going to be asking for you know, all sorts of assistance. It's I have seen globally, uh, when it comes to all these global organizations and conferences, African presidents do so well with their facts and figures, but then what happens after that? So sure. we lend a lot of gravitas to many of these things. He's the chairman, yes, a chairman is not, is not your everyday person, but then what, what in effect, something, what effective, uh, agenda does he have that will change the way the world looks at everything 
not only just the way it looks at Africa, not only the way it looks at, at global mm -hmm. peace, global trade, um, climate change, but what can we do that the world will stop and say, sure. the global south is, is talking, the Nanarine movement is talking, we need to give them you raise a, a You raise a very important point there, which is around financial dependence. Uh, Dima, one of the big issues on the table has been about trying to reform the financial architecture, the international financial architecture. And I'm wondering what that looks like in the eyes of the non-aligned movement. How do you go about doing that? And what is the vision for that? Listen, there has been a lot of discussions around the reform of the financial architecture due to the uh, uh, debt relief need for all the countries of the South. There is an ongoing discussion that is happening, and G77 have been amplifying that voice, and I'm sure that the non-aligned movement uh, have been doing the same. I came here for the uh, South Summit, uh, and I know very much that the G77, who are the, uh, you know, uh, the architects behind the, uh, this discussion, have been pursuing that. There is a serious discussion at the UN, also spearheaded by other entities. There is a, you know, a whole report that has been produced by UN DESA with, uh, you know, a, a, a trigger from UN Secretary General for that. There is a need also using South-South cooperation to learn from experiences of other countries. There are countries that have been trying to look at different models to relieve that uh, in-depthness. And this is something that we are trying to pursue uh, with them in terms of knowledge sharing and knowledge exchange. I think the financial architecture reform will take its time uh, and it will be also subject to a lot of discussions mm -hmm. and the G77 and China are playing a major role in amplifying and relaying the message of the countries of the South in this respect. So we've been talking a lot here about what the non-aligned movement wants, reform at the United Nations, reform of the global financial architecture. You raised a question, Nicholas, about, about the power that these countries actually have to change anything. Andy, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. How does the non-aligned movement get what it wants? And right now, is there an opportunity here as we see increasing great power competition, when we see the, the divergence of views when it comes to the war in Ukraine, what's going on in Gaza, what's going on as you were talking about there, the second Cold War between the, the US and China, given that there are potentially sides to take here, is there power in not taking one? And does that raise the relevance and the profile of the non-aligned movement right now? Yes, uh, I think when it comes to uh, great power rivalry, I think the non-aligned movement itself is the perfect forum to, you know, to, to provide an alternative for countries who do not want, who do not want to be aligned with one of the two powers. But uh, on, on the question of uh, economic dependence, uh, I, I think the global south uh, also now counts some of the uh, rising uh, uh, economies. Uh, and in fact, some of them are now members of the G20. In fact, uh, in the, in the, uh, the chairmanship of G20 uh, in 2022 was Indonesia, last year was India, mm -hmm. this year is Brazil, and the next year will be South Africa. So four uh, countries from the global south are actually now leading the G20. And I think this is where they, I can, they can use their leverage. And I understand that all these four countries, when they speak at the G20 summits, uh, they represent, they always bring the voice of the global south. So, you know, 
the, the entire South, uh, because the the, the, the in the global South, there are countries and emerging economies with more leverage. Uh, BRICS, the Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and not let's say new members, they are also pressing for changes in the global financial system. Uh, so that that's also pressure, and they I guess they represent the global South. And at the COP uh, summit on, on climate change, mm -hmm. uh, Indonesia and many other countries are pressing the, the the rich countries to do their share to you know to disburse uh, aid for countries to help them cope with climate change. So that's a lot of pressures, and that's a lot of organizations. Uh, uh, whether multilateral or regional, that are putting pressure and representing the, the interests of the global south. Andy, you mentioned BRICS there. In addition to the countries yeah. that you mentioned, obviously Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, we now have Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE joining. Obviously, it's not considered yeah. non-aligned. You have Russia in there, you have China in there, you have Iran yeah. in there as well. I'm wondering about yeah. how we're seeing this this global order being shaped by these different blocks. Uh, Nicholas, let me throw this one to you. Do you see these blocks, these emerging blocks, do you see them getting getting stronger and therefore having more power to, to push the agenda that, that you've been talking about? You've talked about, about desires for change, but questioned whether or not there is actually the power to, to do it. Thank you very much. Um there is, a, there is, if we are talking about the long run, yes, if we are consistent on the issue of, on two issues, one, strengthening governance, and two, building these economies so that they become viable economies. Economies that are, are highly indebted are always going to be very fragile. They end up with weak and failed states because one of the things about uh, the global south, uh, and especially the, the majority in uh, that is the African countries, the African continent has such a young population. Now, a young population without employment, productivity is low. The end result is that you're going to have issues to do with security, and because people have to survive, they, we can't mm. just lecture them. So, when you have uh, weak states it is very, very difficult for them to be taken seriously. And that's, that's, the, that's, that's why uh, many, uh, the thinking about very many people is mm -hmm. that before we even go into all this, we must think about what do we do about strengthening economies in the global south. And one of the things that you should know is that it is in the global south, because the majority are really African countries, the 55 mm -hmm. or so, the 52 or so, we have some of the, 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 the most important resources, natural resources that yes. are on demand globally. Look at you, the you Congo mentioned and that so there on. Was, so I, I have a very brief question for Andy, just picking up on what you were saying there. Obviously, there's a lot of resources, a lot of potential in a lot of the countries that we're talking about. And we've seen great powers try to woo a lot of these countries, not only economically, but also politically. And some might argue that the narrative from the West really recently has been about uh, democracy versus autocracy. So, Andy, just very briefly, let me ask you, is that working? Well, I mean, there's definitely problems within many countries in the global south with regards to democracy or lack of it. And they need to address this, irrespective of, you know, pressure from, from the West. 
because at the end of the day, like uh, Nicola says, it's about governance. And that seems to be a, a big problem in many of the countries in the global south. This, they, they need to address, we, we need to address this definitely. Uh, and to be able to, you know, to stand mm -hmm. and negotiate uh, with other countries addressing all the problems like uh, debts, uh, uh, climate change, uh, mm -hmm. foreign aid, uh, development, all those things. Uh, they need to happen, but uh, we need to have good governance in all the countries in the, in the global south. That's, that's, hearing that I guess that's the biggest challenge. All yeah. of you. Huge challenges ahead, but we'll leave it there for now. Thank you to all of our guests, Nicholas Sangoba, Endi Bayouni and Dima Al-Khatib. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, John Paul Ging, Veronica Pedrosa and Jim Gilchrist. Studio sound by Mohamed Osman. This program was edited by Alex Kohler, David Enders, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening and tune in again on Sunday for our next one. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, Holemia Sparrow's story, Almost Real, imagines a future where Canadian Indigenous people have created an AI trained on their traditional knowledge. She represents over 200 nations and over 30 language groups in the Confederation of Unceded Sovereign Indigenous Nations. This powerful being is stolen and forced to perform in Canada land. What now? A theme park. But instead of Mickey Mouse, it's Mr. Moose and Mounties. But a group of undercover operatives hatch a plan to get her back. We're going to Canada to save Almost Real. Will you help us? Almost Real on Necessary Tomorrows. A new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.